Welcome to Grace. Uh, we are coming to you live from our DC broadcasting studio. Uh, it is awesome. We're eight floors up. We're looking down at all the snow. It's fantastic. Isn't technology great that we're able to do this? So thank you for joining us today. I just want to say one thing about uh, groups, uh, community groups. I, I, I hope that everybody got a chance to watch uh, the national championship game this past week. I, I think that we've seen this game before Alabama Clemson. Maybe uh, Alabama and Clemson would like to allow other people to get in on that national championship every now and then and play the game. But anyway, uh, we saw it, and they were talking to the quarterback of Clemson, Trevor Lawrence. He is the second true freshman to ever win the national title. The first true freshman for us from Oklahoma. Oklahoma Sooner. I know Ed Weaver, who's right behind this camera right now, is a big Oklahoma fan. Doug Swigger, big Oklahoma fan. First true freshman to ever win was 33 years ago. Jamel Holloway, as a true freshman, won the national title. Trevor Lawrence is the second, 33 years later, to win it. And they're on the field with Trevor right after the game. Like, Trevor, Mike in the face. How are you able to do this? And you know what he said? He said, I have a great small group. I have a great small group. That's what we call community group. So if you want to be a winner, win a national title, you want to do something good for your life, according to the quarterback of the national champions, Clemson, uh, he's in a great small group. You can get in a great community group, so I encourage you just to sign up. Okay, so we're starting a new series today. I'm out to change my world. And here's the thing about changing the world. Before we can change the world, we have to change ourselves. Before we change the world, we have to change ourselves. And what what this book is going to give us, and the book is, I know I had a bunch of people say, what's this book we're going to study? Romans, the letter to the Romans or the Roman church. And I think it's really fitting today that we are actually in Washington, D.C. broadcasting. We're not across the river in Virginia because D.C. is modern day Rome. We are in modern day Rome. I think it's pretty cool that we're actually broadcasting as we kick this series off about the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, right here in Washington, D.C., modern day Rome. But before we can actually change the world ourselves. We have to be changed ourselves. I have to be changed before I can go out and change the world. And what Romans is going to give us is this. And here's the question from the start, right? What is the picture you have of God in your head? What is the image that you have of God in your head? This is really important because if we don't have a correct picture of God, whatever that might be, if we don't have a correct picture of God, we are not going to experience the power of the change. We sang about there's power in the name of Jesus. The name in the Bible, the name of Jesus, or the name of anybody in, in the Bible speaks of who that person is. What is their character? Why is there power in the name of Jesus? Because it's who Jesus Christ is. So to have a correct picture of God in heads. Change is us. And that is what this is going to be all about. Power. Now I want to start with this. When I was a kid, uh, we would vacation wherever, you know, a few places here and there. But most consistently, we drove down 95 South to Florida. And if you've ever taken that trip before, You'll notice as you go down 95 South, there's all these billboards, billboard after billboard after billboard for a place called South of the Border. It's right on the border of North and South Carolina. It's a little place. And as a kid, I would see it and, and I would beg and my sister would beg our parents, please stop this place. I mean, Pedro says it's awesome, right? So we wanted to go to this place that had this fabulous average, dozens and dozens and dozens of bills. It must be, it must be fabulous. And so as a kid, finally, 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 the parents broke down and we went 
to south of the border. And wow, were we disappointed. It was nothing of what the average, like it, it prompt, average time was way up here, but the delivery was way, way down here. And I'll never forget the day that we finally, as now we're parents, Krista and I, we're parents and we have our kids, Jonathan and Gracie, and they're like saying the same thing that I said as a kid, please, mom and dad, can we please stop at south of the border? And finally there was the day, there was that day, that we decided to stop and to take them into south of the border. And one of the things we did with them that my parents never did with us is we went into the arcade section at south of the border. I'll never forget what my son said. He went into this uh, game. It's not really a game, uh, whatever, an attraction right there in the arcade, right? And it said the hurricane. So you can experience a hurricane. And so he goes into the hurricane experience. And I saw him as he came out. He says, it was like a weak hair dryer. Like the, he could barely feel the wind blowing in, in, in the hurricane. And he said he looked up where the wind was coming from and was just covered, was covered up. So it was a terrible experience. So what I'm saying is, is this. There's a big hype. There's a big hype about this great, awesome place, but really under-delivering. So I want to say this right from the get-go, right? Maybe you're thinking here, well, wait a minute. You're talking about power. Because we're going to, talk, we're going to read some of the most famous verses, Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read it in just a second. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because there's Power, power, it's a big word. Is there really power? Like, can my life be changed as a result? Can the world be changed? So I'd like to take a brief trek through history. I want to start and move backwards all the way to the letter of the Romans. And I want to start with Southern California in the 1960s and in the 1970s in Southern California. Because something happened during those days. Now, now if you if you can remember back, if if I know many of us weren't born in the 60s or 70s. I was just barely born in the 60s or 70s. But anyway, if you could think back, what was happening in our world? So there was political tension. Uh, there's the Vietnam War, there's Watergate, that's a bunch of other stuff too. There's racial tension, civil rights abuses, the civil rights movement, the assassination of Dr. King. So it was racial tension, right? There was all kinds of cultural tension. There was social and there was sexual tension. All the norms were being challenged. People were smoking dope and dropping acid and hippies and right, long flowing with, you know, bells and not cutting the hair and going around barefoot. All the social norms were being free love and sex. People were burning flags. People were burning bras. People were burning all kinds of stuff. What I'm saying is there was all kinds of stuff that were happening in the 60s and 70s. And you might be able to say, mm, that sounds a little bit like today. Yes, yeah, it does. So, Southern California, small, small church, a small church pastored by a guy by the name of Chuck Smith, no longer with us, Chuck Smith, big old guy, former football player, great guy, straight lace guy. And he and his wife would drive down to the beaches of Southern California. We're filled with hippies, hippies everywhere, walking around, dumpster diving, barefooted, just loving, right? And he would think to himself, hey, get a haircut, get a job. And, you know, that's, that's what he would His wife would see the hippies in her heart. She would just start crying and, pray, and praying for them. Well, lo and behold, Pastor Chuck Smith ends up taking some hippies into his home. He and his wife, like they invite them into their home to live with them. And two hippies turns into dozens of hippies and they have to rent another house down the street. Now they have dozens. So you have this little church, right? Small church, basically all just church, straight-laced churchgoers in it. Chuck Smith looks around, he's like, oh my goodness, what, what are we doing here? And all of a sudden he invites, he begins to pray for, begins to reach out to, invite in 
Now also you get this little tiny church that just begins to explode with people in their teens and their 20s who are so very different. But Chuck Smith and his wife just begin to love on and reach out to them, and there is an explosion. Now, Chuck Smith says, i, I got to figure out what book of the Bible, at the beginning of this whole thing, what should I preach to? What book do you think he preached to? He had heard there was power in the letter to the Romans, and he began to preach through that, and, and there's no other way. A revolution takes place. Like Time Magazine covers it. This is so huge. That one little tiny church began to baptize 900 people every month. That little tiny church begins to baptize 900, basically all hippies, 900 people every Now that, that is power. There's the first one. Now I want to go a little bit farther back in history. John Wesley. John Wesley was a preacher's kid, very straight-laced, very strict, very disciplined, very harsh. When he was in college, he and a bunch of his buddies formed something called the Holy Club. They don't call it the Holy Club. Everybody calls it the Holy Club because they think they're holy and they mock them. But they would pray every day, communion every week, three hours a day of Bible study. They live very strict disciplined, harsh lives. And when he leaves college, he goes, he's a pastor, he goes and kind of enforces that upon his church. His church goes nuts. It just, it just doesn't work. But they got the name Methodist because everybody says, well, you have a method, you have a method to your holiness. And he lives this very strict life. Now he, he leaves England, he's in England, to come here to America because he's coming to convert the American Indians. That's what his, his idea. He's on the ship coming over, a huge storm hits it. He freaks out. He's scared. He doesn't know why he's scared. He's lived such a good life. He should be good with God. He's just scared. And he sees these Moravian Christians. They're not scared at all. He's like, what is, what, what's with you? And he realizes something's missing. Then he gets to Georgia. He goes to Georgia. He's in Georgia. He's got a crush. Got a crush on a girl. Big time crush. Ask her to marry him. She says no. It was like the next day or it was that week was very close after she rejects him and says, no, she shows up to church with another guy who she's going to marry. And she comes down front to receive communion. And John Wesley says, no, no, you don't get any communion today. Like the soup Nazi, he's the communion Nazi, says, no communion for you today. This so devastates him. He's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. This is terrible. He leaves Georgia, goes back to England. He's depressed. He's dejected. He's down. So he's in London trying to figure all this out. And he even said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who in the world is going to convert me? So the picture he had in his head of God was completely wrong. And he goes to a meeting at a place called Aldersgate Street. And while he's there, the preface to a book is being read. What book do you think it was? A preface to a book was being read. And during that, he says, my heart was strangely warmed. He had a conversion experience. That preface to the book was Martin Luther's preface on his commentary to the letter to the Romans. The book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, has so changed people's lives in a powerful way. His heart was completely... Now, what happened as a result of the picture in his head being changed? England was a tough place. It was a brutal place to be. The, the poor and the sick were not being cared for. There was all kinds of labor laws, including child labor laws. People were being hurt. The poor were being exploited. People were being thrown away. Trash, so to speak, just being thrown away as common trash. 
And he begins to, because of this picture he has in his head of God, he begins to care for the poor, start orphanages, take care of those who are needy, right? Loving on people because the picture had changed and it so powerfully changed him that he begins to go out and relate to the world and encourage and inspire people to do the same thing. The biggest thing that we notice from this is the end of the global slave trade. So John Wesley is the inspiration behind William Wilberforce, just fanning his flames. Don't give up. We have to end this. God doesn't want this. Don't give up all the time to Wilberforce about that. It changed him. The picture in his head changed, changed him. And then he went out and changed the world. And we call this the great Wesleyan revival. Every great revival results in social transformation because the picture in the head has changed. Now let's go back. He is reading a commentary written by Martin Luther. Who's Martin Luther? He is a very strict, very devout, very I'm going to live by all the rules, right? Monk, right? In the uh, 15th century, 15th, 15th century, right? He writes this about his life, living this strict life. I'm going to quote him. Ready? I labored diligently and ang- I just want you to think about the picture in your head and the picture he has in his head, Okay. I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word, the expression, the righteousness of God. It's very important because that that's what we're going after this morning. It blocked the way. So righteousness blocked the way because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Although an impeccable monk, he was a monk, although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. He hated and murmured against God. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. And he says this, I broke through. That's my prayer for all of us today, all of us, that all of us would have this breakthrough from this new picture that we have of God. He says, I broke, don't you need a breakthrough? And as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word. The church was transformed by what happened to Martin Luther. The picture in his head changed and it changed the world as a result. This is a historical fact. Because the picture in his head about who God was, the image in his head about who God was, completely changed, impacted and changed him. And it went forward to change to change the entire Christian church in the Great Reformation. Now, a pastor in the 1930s from Ebenezer Baptist Church out of Atlanta, Georgia, went to visit Germany, studied Martin Luther. He was so inspired that he renamed his child. His child, his five-year-old son's name was Michael King Jr. Do you know who Michael King Jr. is? That was his birth name. And his father came back to Atlanta and changed his son's name. And his son, we know him as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That, my friends, is power. Last one, last one, St. Augustine. St. Augustine is a beach in Florida. St. Augustine is a fourth century theologian who many consider the most influential and greatest theologian that the Christian church has ever had. This guy was brilliant. He's from North Africa. He's called Augustine of Hippo, which is Algeria. So he's North African. He's from the country today of Algeria. Extremely influential, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. You might say, John, um, so how did he become 
a Christian because for for a long time, if you know anything about Augustine, he would not become a Christian. He would not put his faith in Jesus Christ. And so you might say, well, John, did he not do that because intellectually he just had problems with placing his faith? No, 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 that's not his issue. His, his issue wasn't that. He was very clear with what his issue was, particularly in his book called Confessions. His issue was lust. His issue was straight up lust. I am not becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not placing my faith in Jesus because I can't, because I'm so filled with lust. He says this about himself. I had surrendered myself entirely to lust. He writes later, I was floundering in a broiling sea of fornication. What a visual you get on that. All right, so this is what he says in his, in his book, Confessions. This is how his conversion and how the power takes place. The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden. So he's someplace and he goes out in the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. Suddenly I heard a voice from a nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl. Pick up and read. Pick up and read. I took the book, the book of the apostle, which is the book of Romans, opened it and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. Quote from Romans 13, not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and its lust. End of quote. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Now, that's power. Why did I go through that? Chuck Smith, John Wesley, Martin Luther, and now St. Augustine, because these are very, very influential people in the world, upon the church, but way beyond the church, all the way into the world. History, history shows that. Huge impact. And they were all impacted. The picture of God they had in their head was changed by the book of Romans, and as a result of them being changed, they changed their world. We're out to change our world. Finally, how about, how about Rome? What is, what is happening in Rome? And again, I said earlier, it's great to be broadcasting live from modern day Rome, Washington, D.C. this morning. Rome was the most powerful city on the face of the earth. It was filled with towers, a huge city. It was a large city. It was a very corrupt city. People say it was a cesspool of iniquity, right? It was a brutal city. There was no care for the sick or the poor. Babies were led, uh, left for dead. It was slaves. They had so many slaves for labor, for, for sexual purpose. People weren't treated well at all. The Colosseum in Rome was built, they say, by about 60,000 Jewish slaves after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. In the Colosseum, you think about this. You think about how brutal this, 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 this country is, this city is. In the Colosseum, as many as 10,000 animals, animal rights activists, 10,000 animals a day were killed for a total during the lifespan of the Colosseum while it was being used as it was. About a million, about a million animals were killed and about 400,000 People. In some cases, they would just march people out totally naked and scared and trembling, and they would just let loose animals, all kinds of different animals, just for show, to attack them and just kill them. It was blood, blood flowed in the Colosseum. It's a very, very brutal place. Now, Rome itself had perfected the art of execution through crucifixion. It was a terrible, ter- terrible way to die, very terrible way to die, and they had perfected it. People were hurt so bad. They, they, tens of thousands of people were crucified. 
If you walk into the Colosseum today, I had the great opportunity to do a number of years ago. If you enter into the Emperor's Gate, you will see there at the Emperor's Gate this huge cross. The cross in the day of Rome, when, when, when these words are being written, right, in 57 by the Apostle Paul, the cross showed the power of Rome. And Rome had set its sights in destroying this little Jewish sect called Christianity. And today that cross there at the emperor's gate and the city of Rome is filled with crosses today represents the power of the gospel. Big difference. Power of Rome, no way that Christianity could survive. And here you have power of Rome and the power of the gospel. There, there's the introduction. Four things I'd like you to know quickly before we get into the study. This is a big introduction to this incredible book, this powerful book that changes us and then in turn changes the world. We have to change first. We change the world. Here's four quick things. First of all, this is the most packed section of all of Scripture about the gospel, the word, the gospel, which I'll explain in just a moment. It is the most packed section in all. Romans has more references to the gospel than any other book in the Bible. Second thing I'd like you to know, it is most the most packed section in regard to the Holy Spirit because those two always go together. Third thing I'd like you to know, the Christian movement is mainly Jewish but rapidly becoming Gentile. I'll talk more about that in the weeks to come, but that plays a major role here. Fourth and final, uh, fourth and final thing, why Paul is writing. He's writing from the city of Corinth very difficult city itself, but he's writing from the city of Corinth to clearly explain to the Jewish Christians what the gospel is. And with that, I'm simply going to begin reading Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 17, selected verses there. I'll, I'll miss a gap here, but I'll get to the ones that I would like to talk about today. Here we go. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection confirms that Jesus is God. I'll get to that in just a second as well. Jesus, our Lord, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So we're not obedient and then we get in to this thing called Christianity. No, it's by faith, faith. And then when we, so what it's saying there is when we center our lives on the correct picture of who God is in Jesus Christ, when we have that right picture in our head, then that, when we revolve our life around that, then that's when salvation happens and his spirit enters into our life. And then we find ourselves being changed because we want to, not because we have to. And that is a massive difference. Let's continue. For his name's sake, verse 6, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In order that I might have a harvest among you, he is referring to what Jesus Christ said, that when the seed goes into the soil and you actually understand the seed, there is a supernatural harvest. 
This is what this is all about. Having a correct understanding of who God is and the picture that we have through Jesus Christ. There's a supernatural. He said, I want to have that among you, just as I had among the other Gentiles. Verse 14. I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now, we got to stop right here for just a second. He's preaching the gospel to Christians. I just want to say this very clearly. What Paul is saying here is that our focus should always be on the gospel. And some people think that the gospel is the ABCs, the elementary facts of what Christianity is. I don't need that anymore. I need to go on to something else, something deeper, because I got the ABCs down. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The gospel is not only how you become a Christian, but how you grow as a Christian. So you can never lose sight of the gospel. And every time the church has lost sight of the gospel... That's when trouble, that's when we fall off the rail. So I, I would just encourage you to really wrestle with Paul, what Paul is saying here. Never, never, never think the gospel is the ABCs. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's how you become a Christian and how you grow as a Christian. You'll never keep growing as a Christian unless you're focused on the gospel. Let's keep moving. All right. Uh, to preach the gospel, you also know. Here's verse 16, famous verse. For I am not ashamed... Of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now here's what most scholars and theologians say is the nutshell of the gospel right here, Romans 117. It's where I'll stop. 117. And this is what, this is what Martin, Martin Luther talked about. This is what was being explained to Wesley and this is why it made such an impact on their life. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I'll say that again. For in the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In other words, all about faith. And faith is an equal opportunity employer, so to speak. Anybody can have faith. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So there's a couple things I'd like to say right here from the outset about First and foremost, about righteousness. What does righteousness mean? In its broadest sense, righteousness means the way things should be or the way things ought to be. So what's happening here is, verse 17, for in the gospel, for in the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is revealed to us is the way that things should be. It is the correct picture of who God is. We have to understand that. The way things to be. The gospel is the story of the life and death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Jesus is revealing God to the world. Colossians 2.9 says it this way. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Why does the Bible put such a huge emphasis on the fact that Jesus is God, that he is deity. I know we, we debate it for a lot of different reasons, but here's one of the main reasons why the Bible is pressing, pressing, pressing this point, because that's who God is. Jesus treats people with love and kindness and mercy and grace and respect. He always stands up for the right thing. He always confronts the wrong thing, and we need to have that picture of God. So it's saying, oh my gosh, I didn't know God was that way. That's the key point here. Here is the correct picture of God. Here is why Martin Luther and John Wesley were so transformed. Here is the correct picture of God. We always get the picture wrong. 
and what's being said. Here's the picture, and that's why you need to know this is the way. He's not some other way. This is the way God is. The Ten Commandments, very famous Ten Commandments. So the first commandment, what? Have no other gods before me. In other words, center your life on God, and your life will be better. Wow, snow's falling right behind me. It's amazing, okay? Center your life, center your life on God, and your life will be better if you live there. Second commandment, what's the second commandment? Don't make any graven images. Don't make any idols. Why? Why? Because when we create an image or a picture or an idol of God, we create it, and 100% of the time we're going to get it wrong. And God says, don't do that because you're going to get it wrong. Because we're always, I'm going to create an image that works for me or my group of people. And it, it might negatively affect yours, but I don't care I, I, because I want it to work for me. So I'm going to create a God in my liking. So he says, don't create an image because you're going to 100% of the time get it wrong. So don't, don't, don't do that. God is saying, I'm going to create. I'm going to create the image. And the image that God created is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15. Jesus Christ is the image of God. So now there's the picture. So if I make an idol, I say, okay, there's God. That's what God looks like. That's what God, here's what's important to God. Here's what God finds. Oh, no, 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 no. God says, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm going to create the image for you so that it is right. And when we get the picture of God, the right God, Jesus Christ, in our heads, that so powerfully affects us. If that becomes the central thing, if we revolve ourselves around that, we place all of our focus and Faith and trust and belief in that. Jesus Christ, and we'll say this again, Jesus Christ always stood up for the right things, no matter what. And he always confronted the wrong things, no matter what. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. There's so many verses on this. I'll give you more as the weeks go, okay? No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who is himself God, has made him known. 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So if you see somebody, yeah, yeah, I believe in God, and they're acting in an unloving way, well, then you know that they have, they don't have the right picture of God in their head. This is what changed so many people. Chuck Smith, John Wesley, Martin Luther, St. Augustine, and it changed the entire city of Rome, a very brutal city, because the picture in their head of God was incorrect. And when they got the right picture, the right image, the right thing to worship and bow down to and place trust in, it so affected their lives. This is why it's so powerful, because we begin to move towards whatever is the top thing in our life. It is going to shape our life. And if we have the correct picture of Jesus, the correct picture of God in our heads, it will powerfully transform our life and we'll have a supernatural harvest. And that picture, here's the thing, we always move back and forth between God, the picture being God too harsh or being too indifferent. Too harsh or being too indifferent. And we just waver. I'll talk a lot about the prodigal son, the lost son, the parable that Jesus told throughout this series. Because we waver back and forth between the son who went out and just did whatever he wanted. It's a very cruel thing. He's very cruel to his family. He's very cruel to everybody he met. But he was doing whatever he wanted. He did what was right in his own eyes. He was just like, hey, I, I love everybody doing that. But what happened when you live a relative life like that is a lot of people get hurt. The hippie movement, it's free love and sex and blah, blah, blah. But what happened is a reaction to that is they realized that that was actually hurting a lot of people. You can't live that way, but you can't live a too harsh way. What you had is you got this constant battling back and forth. Is God too harsh or is God too indifferent? And you see neither one in Jesus Christ. Now, if you go on the harsh, harsh way, harsh way, 
because that happens a lot. You end up with an angry God who is obsessed about your sin. That was Martin Luther. That was John Wesley. And they had no freedom as a result of that. What you get is you got a God who can't look on sin. I don't know if you ever heard that before. God can't look on sin. But Jesus did. God can't bear to be around sinners. But, but Jesus did. Jesus is the correct view of God. He's the picture that we need to have. Not too harsh, not too indifferent. I just want to read you a quote. Famous sermon. I want to be very careful here. It's a sermon Jonathan Edwards uh, preached. And uh, Jonathan Edwards is theological royalty. I just want to make sure that nobody misunderstands me here. He's far smarter than I. I'm not coming down on Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he probably is writing this because he was living in India in a time when things had gone way off track and people were really doing their own thing. A lot of pain and suffering as a result was probably, that was probably everything that was going on there. But, but this sermon is the most famous sermon in the United States of America. I know in Arlington County, this sermon is, this assigned for high schoolers to read. And I want you to think about the picture that it puts in high schoolers' head. It is the most famous sermon ever preached in the United States of America. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I want to read an excerpt from Jonathan Edwards. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or a loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. That's the picture that Luther and Wesley had for sure. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. What picture do you have in your head of God? If you have the picture of Jesus Christ and you study the life of Jesus Christ, you will know that that won't be the picture you have in your head. I had a cousin of mine years ago went down to, uh, it was a, a revival in a church um, down south. It was in Florida, actually. And this was huge. Church, I, I don't know if any many non-church going people were showing up to this, but people from all over the world, church people from all over the world were coming. It was such, 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 such a big deal. I remember him telling me about what it was like being, he was there for a week. People from his, from his church had sent him there. And he said, he said, John, everything was sin. Everything was sin. God was angry with sin. You couldn't do anything. They're in Florida. So he said, you couldn't go to the beach. That was a sin to go to the beach. You couldn't watch TV. Right. Basically, the only thing you can do in life was to go to church and pray. That was the only thing that wasn't a sin, and that was questionable. But everything, God was angry, everything. And he told me, he says, he said, every, every night there would be a salvation call, and it was so hyped up, man. You're going to burn in hell, right? It was so hyped, and there was so much fear. He said, one night, he's there, and, and, and the guy's preaching, and he said, look, you got 30 seconds to get to this altar, and he said, when he said that, the drummer had this part, he said, big boom on the drum. And he kept talking and he said, you got fit. And the drummer would like pick the pace. So by the time he got down to 10 seconds, the drum was like, boom, boom. And he said, you better get here. He said, a guy took off at like four seconds left from the back of this huge auditorium there and sprinted down the aisle. And the guy was counting three, two, 
And the guy was just still like 15 feet away from the altar. He dove like a baseball player into home plate just and crashed into the altar. What picture do you have in your head of God? Is God angry? Is God holding you over fire? Are you disgusting in the, in the sight of God? Because that wasn't the picture that Jesus had. It's very clear that that was not the picture that Jesus has. And if we have that picture in our head, where we immediately begin to jump is, is that God is full of wrath. And he's either going to take his wrath out on you, or what we say is he took his wrath out on Jesus Christ. And he just pummeled Jesus. That could have been you, but thank goodness Jesus took our place and he pummeled him. Is that really the picture that we're being presented about Jesus Christ who associated, loved, respected people of all kinds of lifestyles back then, right? Is that the picture that we have of Jesus Christ? Is there a different picture that we need to have in place? Who killed Jesus? I want to suggest to you that Jesus, just like Peter says in Acts chapter 2, was killed Because he always stood up for the right thing and he always confronted the wrong thing. And it was for those reasons that Jesus Christ was killed, right? Pilate himself says that Jesus Christ is innocent, but he's going to get any pilots. Like, don't you dare have anything to do with Jesus? He's innocent. Don't do it. I've been troubled in a dream. Have nothing, have nothing. Don't, don't do anything bad against this innocent man. Why? Because he wants to maintain his palace. He doesn't want his life affected in a negative way. That's kind of the human condition. I am willing to sacrifice you so that I can continue to live the life any way I want to. Why do the religious leaders? Why do, why do they want to put Jesus to They want to maintain their power. Everybody's beginning to go over to Jesus, right? They're beginning to go over to Jesus. And so they want to maintain their position, their power. So what is Jesus? I will sacrifice myself so that you can live, right? What is the opposite way? The opposite way is, is that I'm willing to sacrifice you in order for me to live life any single way that I want. And when we center our lives on the correct picture of Jesus Christ that we find in the scriptures, it completely transforms us. It changes the picture. We center our life on that. His spirit enters in and we are transformed. Jesus Christ would never, he refused to stop doing the right thing. Do I always do that? Absolutely not. Do I see it as the answer? I absolutely do. If we lived in a world where people always did the wrong, right thing and always stood up against the wrong thing, we would live in a different world, a transformed world. We'd live in a world, a righteous world, the way things ought to be, the way things should be. Always standing up for the right, always confronting the wrong. Jesus Christ did that. Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. He gets all of his tax collecting friends and all his sinning friends. And everybody's like, how can you do this? The religious leaders are so ticked off at Jesus. How can you associate with him? How can a holy God look on something that's so impure? And he's there. He's just loving them. And then they come and they confront him. Why are you doing this? And then Jesus says this. He's there loving them. They love Jesus. People who aren't anything like Jesus love Jesus. And then Jesus says, yeah, it's not uh, it's not the healthy that need a doctor or the sick. Oh, man, are you calling Matthew and his buddy sick? And he says this. He says, I've come to help sinners. I've come to call sinners. Are you calling them sinners? Yes. Matthew and his buddies were stealing from people. They were doing wrong. Jesus loved people no matter what. But he didn't say you can do whatever you want. And there's the rub. Not too harsh. Not too indifferent. Is that the picture that you have? Of Jesus Christ in your head because this is what he lives out. So he is. Last thing, I'm almost done. When Jesus, when Jesus is, is about ready to go to the cross, he's standing trial, he's with Pilate. In Matthew 27, there's actually two Jesuses there. If you look up in your Bible in Matthew 27, you'll see that Barabbas' name was actually Jesus Barabbas. So you have two Jesuses. You have Jesus Barabbas 
in Jesus the Christ. Jesus Barabbas is willing to kill his enemies. Jesus the Christ is willing to forgive his enemies. Which Jesus, Pilate looks at the crowd, which Jesus do you want? The one that forgives his enemies, Jesus the Christ. The one that kills his enemies. When things are the way they should be, when my life is the way it should be, I should be forgiving my enemies. I should always be standing up for the right thing and always confronting the wrong thing. Those people who do that, Jesus Christ is the hero of the Bible. Those people who do that are heroes. Uh, right here in Arlington County, I know we're in D.C., but in Arlington County, at the corner of George Mason Drive in Columbia Pike, just a few months ago on a Thursday night at 9 p.m., a man right there on the side of the road, right off the road, there's a small park there, if you're familiar with the area, a man was sexually assaulting a woman. A gentleman walking by, his name is Patricio Salazar, he's 54 years old, he saw it, he stepped in, he intervened. They, actually, the news called him a good Samaritan, biblical term, good Samaritan. He goes, he gets hit, he's killed. Because of this, the man who was attacking the woman, you know, flees, but Salazar dies. We look at that, we say, this man's a hero. I want you to compare that with a minute with a famous case that happened in New York City, Kitty Genovese. She's coming home from work. It's late at night. A man had followed her. She's walking to her apartment. It's very late at night. He runs up on her and he stabs her with a knife. She screams. Lights come on in the apartments above. Somebody yells out, leave her alone. Nobody comes down. The man who attacked her runs away. But when he sees that nobody is willing to inconvenience themselves or put themselves on the line and to come down and to rescue her, he comes back sometime later. And ends up killing her. There wasn't a hero to be found. Patricio Salazar wasn't there. Jesus Christ always does the right thing. He always stands up in love, in mercy, in grace, but he will always confront. He's neither too harsh nor too indifferent. Do you have that picture in your head of God? Because that's the picture that Wesley and Luther and Augustine had in their heads of God. And when you get that in you, as revealed to us in Romans, as we'll see in Romans, it'll transform our lives. He is the very image of God that we have. So I want to ask you, have you ever placed your trust? Have you ever said, you know, I'm going to let my life revolve around that picture, Jesus Christ, as presented to me? And if you haven't, would you place your trust in Jesus Christ? As you're watching, you can press the prayer button if you want somebody to pray with you. If you do that, if you say this will be the central purpose of my life, Jesus Christ, who he was, how he acted in any and all situations, It'll transform your life because his spirit, his spirit, we're told, will enter into you and completely fill you with his power to transform you. I want to encourage you. Put your trust in Jesus Christ today and the picture that's presented to us in the Gospels. Next week, we're going to talk about why is God so angry with plagiarism? I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray for all those who are placing their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the many people that are watching Grace Live at this moment. I want to thank you, God, for how you're changing the picture in our heads about who, who you really are through Jesus Christ. I want to ask God, as it says, this righteousness, the way things should be, is being revealed. Like a new picture is being unveiled of who you really are. And when we operate with that as the central picture in our minds... 
how we're totally transformed. May you breathe your spirit into all of us right now as we focus on the story, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and particularly for those who for the first time are placing their trust in the correct picture of God as presented to us in Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.